0: FMR
1: 101.3 People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. Today we're going to be talking about a book that's just been published called Legacy, written by Thomas Harding, and described as one family, a cup of tea, and the company that took on the world. In the early 1800s, Lehman Gluckstein and his family escaped the pogroms of Eastern Europe and made their way to Whitechapel in London's East End. They started with nothing, they worked tirelessly to pull themselves out of poverty, creating a small tobacco factory that grew to become the largest catering company in the world, J. Lyons. For over a century, Lyons was on every high street, in every home, in every coffee and teacup. It was an ascent from rags to riches in the face of many obstacles. Poverty, hatred and anti-Semitism stood between this poor immigrant family and the British dream. The book has been described by The Express in the UK as the biography of the extraordinary family who put the respectable tea shop on the corner, the hamburger on the high street, plus the cuppa and ready brick on your breakfast table. Well, I have the author with me here in the People of Note Studio, Thomas Harding. Thomas, welcome. It's quite an epic book, so I'm looking forward to hearing all about it. Well, Rodney, it's really wonderful to be here. Thanks for inviting me. One of the things that fascinated me is there is an incredible amount of detail in the book. And before we start talking about the book in more detail, I'm amazed at how you managed to find the tiniest little details, whether
2: it was the weather,
1: but you say your family kept amazing
2: archives. Yes, so for me, I like thrillers i like uh, historical fiction i want to read a book which is going to grip me and i find compelling Uh, so i write narrative non-fiction so what i write is the truth and it's based on facts so to keep it interesting i need to know what socks people were wearing what weather is going on to do that then you're right so the research is important and i was extremely lucky on two fronts one is because it was such a successful company such a loved company uh, the archives have extraordinary records. So the photographic archives, the the National Archives in London. But then, in addition, when I went to the family members when I started the book, and I, you, I should I should explain. I didn't really know this part of the family. I knew my father's family very well. They're the part, they're the relatives I used to hang out with, you know, for weddings, and anniversaries and so on. I think that happens sometimes with families, doesn't it? You become more familiar with one side than the other. Absolutely. On my mother's side, I didn't really know them. I knew my grandfather, I knew my uncle. If I'd walked past them in the street, I wouldn't have recognized these people. So I went to see, my mother introduced me to these three elderly men. I went to see them. And I said, look, I've got this idea, and I I felt a little intimidated, and I wasn't sure it was my story to tell. And they said, no, no, we'd really like you to write this story. And not only that, they said, look, here's our archive. And the interesting thing about the family, the Salmon's and the Glucksteins, which is the family, they were obsessed with themselves, their own story, but incredibly anxious about reputation. So they didn't publish anything. It was all for their private use. And when I met with these three men, they said, here you go. So they they handed over memoirs and unpublished biographies, letters, internal reports, photographs. I mean, it was it was it was a treasure trove. I was extremely fortunate knowing that it was going to be turned into a book and it would be, in fact, made public. Exactly. Exactly. I think the reason is, is back in the 70s, one of the family members, Jeffrey Salmon, had written that now wasn't the time, it was too early. They were still worried about their reputation, but now in 2000, I think I started 2017, 2018, there was sufficient time since some of these occurrences had happened that people were less anxious. Isn't there something somewhere in the book? Well, it must be because I saw there where someone said,
1: I hope that one day our story is told. Is that that's,
2: that's Jeffrey Salmon,
1: exactly? Yeah, yeah. And this is what you've done. You fulfilled yeah. really a
2: dream. I hope so. I hope so.
1: And look, it is a company that everybody knows. And I, I read also somewhere that here in South Africa we all know and. The first shop was in Pinetown, in KwaZulu-Natal. So it's very much part of our legacy as well because so much of Britain influenced this country, eating habits, drinking
2: habits. Well, I mean, one of your most loved businesses is Wimpy. So the Wimpy bars uh, uh, was the family, my family's business. Really? Absolutely. They, they, they introduced Wimpy to South Africa. It was their company. Uh, they had thousands of these restaurant chains 10 years before McDonald's came to Britain. Wimpy was the largest hamburger retail outlet, uh, oh, and, and they brought that to South Africa. Right. Yeah, <laughs> well, there's a thought, something different from Lions. You're welcome.
1: <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, you, absolutely. But um, when, you, when you sort of, what made you want to do it? You, it must have been lurking in your mind for a while, that um, I've got to do this, I've got to do it, right, well, you, do
2: it. Well, I mean, the weird thing is growing up in the 70s, was right at the time when it was coming to an end, the business from my family's point of view. And I was born in 68, so I really wasn't familiar with the family side of it. I was familiar with the products, of course, Lion's Tea, Lion's Cake, Ready Breck, uh, Swiss Rolls, Wimpy as we've spoken to. I was a consumer. There was one experience I had when I was about eight or nine years old. My grandfather took me to the Carvery, which was this restaurant um, just by Marble Arch in Cumberland Hotel. And I remember the starch white tablecloth and the, the red plush velvet seats and the men with the tall white hats.
1: You speak about that beautifully in the book, I think in yeah, the prologue. Is thank
2: you. Uh, and there was, and, and they had a trolley full of desserts. You know, there was cakes and pies and tarts and jellies. And, and my grandfather said, have as much as you want. And you can imagine for a nine-year-old how exciting that was. Yeah, what he didn't say was that he was chairman of the company. And so I really wasn't aware of that. And then if you fast forward to around 2017, 2018, I was walking around central London with my daughter, Sam, teenage daughter. And I said, you know, there was this this building. I said, do you know this is where the first Lions tea shop was? And she said, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then literally a few yards away, this is the Royal Palace Hotel, the largest hotel in Europe. And she said, come on now. And then just going up Shaftesbury Avenue, this is enormous pink building, which is always under renovation. It still is. And I said, this was the Trocadero. This was the center of culture in London in the 1920s. And she started rolling her eyes. and I, I, and, and I realized then that I didn't know how to explain to her what happened to the company. You know, when she started asking me questions. And so I thought, okay, well, this would be really interesting if I could, because for me, writing's about personal interest. It, it needs to be important to me, mm. so I can have a connection. You know, otherwise, it doesn't. I can't really have a, the the grip with the characters. You know, why did they start this thing? What happened to it? Why mm. did it fall? What were the mini dramas? You know, who didn't like who? You know, all these important things. A bit thriller-ish, as you said earlier. Well, for me, dry history, I I Mm. don't personally like reading dry history. I want want to read something with, with, you know, some excitement. Thomas. There's so much to cover
1: that I'm scared we're not going to cover at all. But we always have to have music. So I'm intrigued to know what you're going to choose. And what's your first piece that you've selected for us?
2: Well, I'm going to start with a song which is very much connected with legacy, this family, a memoir, book, uh, biography, history. So by the 1930s, the Salmon and Glucksteins had created the largest catering company in the world, according to Life magazine, the USA magazine. And they had some cultural iconic Aspects. One was the lion tea shops, one was the corner house, but one of them were the waitresses. And these were these female workers who were a national icon, and they were called nippies. And they became so loved that somebody wrote a musical about them. (laughs) And it was called Nippy. And the song that I'd like to choose is It, It Must Be You from the musical Nippy.
1: Nippy, the musical, new for me, I have to say, Thomas. Thomas Harding is my guest here on People of Note, brought to you by Peter Turin Productions on Fine Music Radio. We're talking about his book that's just been released called Legacy, the story of a family that uh, founded the Lion Company. And Thomas, that's what I want to
2: ask you. Where did the name Lion come
1: from? Because it doesn't seem to be in any way related to the family names.
2: So part of my research and and surprise for me personally was learning about the waves of anti-Semitism that my family experienced. Firstly, they had to leave Prussia in the 1820s to get away from the Hep Hep riots, then in Belgium, Holland, and then in England throughout the 19th century. And with a name like Salmon and Gluckstein, they were concerned about who would um, imagine them to be German or Jewish and who wouldn't buy their products. They were very much wanted to assimilate. I think that was quite common. And so they had a a successful tobacco business called Salmon and Gluckstein. But when they went into catering, they thought, let's try something with a more British in quotes sounding name. And so Monty Gluckstein, who was the real Steve Jobs, you know, the founder of Apple, he was the entrepreneur, the driving force of the family. And he'd heard of this guy who had the gift of the gab, who was a salesman. He wasn't great at business. You know, he was a bit slippery, but he was really great at talking. He was a great interlocutor. And they approached him. He approached him and said, look, would you mind if we use your name? We'd love you to front the company, but we'd really like to use your name. And his name was Joseph Lyons and they created a whole myth around him being a family member but he really wasn't a family member and the name caught up so then it became Joe Lyons, J. Lyons, Lyons uh, and that was the name that stuck. And it's Lyons as we know, not with of the Y. Exactly, so L-Y-O-N-S.
1: The other thing is, you know, we talked about the tea shop and the coffee shop and the breakfast but again in your book you tell a lovely story of in the early 1900s, a train leaving Euston and loaded with chefs. And because lions, not only did local
2: corner shops, they were caterers to royalty, weren't they, including Buckingham Palace. So they mastered the idea of mass catering. So the the trip that you're talking about was to provide meals for the largest banquet ever in Scotland at that time for over 2000 people sitting down at the same time. And it was to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Aberdeen University. And not only did they take up chefs and waiters, they also took up 90 live turtles on that train <laughs> from Houston. So they provided the catering at Wimbledon and Buckingham Palace parties. And later on, when, they, when the Second World War took place, uh, and Churchill was really worried how far behind Britain was in the armaments race. He then went to some of the private factories. Uh, to ask for help. And he went to Lyons and said, look, you know how to follow a recipe. You know how to deliver on time and on budget. Could you help us make some armaments? And so then they set up a bomb factory. This is a catering company. And by the end of the war, Jay Lyons had produced one-seventh, one-seventh of all the bombs dropped by bomber command on Germany. This is a German-Jewish immigrant family who were into making swiss rolls and uh you know (laughs) turkish delight that is really quite extraordinary and they didn't mind they were quite happy doing this of course they were they were you know uh, totally loyal and patriotic although interestingly you should ask there were always questions because of their background because they were jewish even a hundred years after their, their arrival they arrived in london in 1843 in the 1940s 100 years later they were still being questioned about their loyalty Uh, Which is, you know, I think gives you an insight into how long it takes xenophobia, racism, anti-Semitism. And they, this family, that's
1: uh, Gluckman. uh, Gluckstein. Did they have any catering knowledge beforehand? No, no. They say they arrived down and out. Yes. It was just literally starting from scratch.
2: Yeah. So Monty Gluckstein, this extraordinary man and his sister Lena they saw an opportunity first of all in the exhibitions they they were traveling salespeople and they went to these places they bought themselves you know food and drink and the food was disgusting it was overpriced it was terribly made and they saw an opportunity and so he was always somebody who was he used to say you know our business is trying to find out what people want before they know they need it <laughs> yes
1: which is very entrepreneurial actually right. because that is the sign of big businesses right it? and the other thing you mentioned is that they this company has gone through all sorts of periods from the old manners and styles of the 20s up through the now the computer age, the digital age, women's rights. Yeah. Somewhere you said women
2: were not even allowed to vote. So so in the end of the 19th century, women uh, in Britain, yeah. and I think around the empire, it was quite difficult to find a safe place to eat. There was no place which was uh, felt to be proper. There was too much alcohol, too much boardiness, There was chop houses and taverns and inns. And so they decided to create these tea shops where it would be safe uh, for women to eat out in public. And they were really the first place, uh, the first chain restaurant where women did feel safe. Mm -hmm. So the family was always um, known for providing a safe spot, a place where people could meet. This was not food for the rich and the famous. This was always food for the masses, quality, affordable food. The corner cafe sort of idea. And and they became that. And so in Britain and then around the world, they really became known for that. uh, as a place where anyone could get a good bite to eat. And then oh, through the Second World War, a place that was reliable. Mm-hmm.
1: And safe, as you say, for, for the man in the street. That's uh, right. The and woman the woman in the street. That's yes, right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Let's have another piece of music. Thomas Harding, I'm talking about your book, Legacy. And I see we've got Bernie M. Yes. I was One of your favorites. <laughs> I <laughs> said to Thomas when we came to the studio how I'm off Boney M at the moment because of that annoying Christmas song. Right. Mary is a boy child. Right. However, since you're my guest, yes. I shall accommodate you. But you have to you have to Explain why. justify why you want to be.
2: There's two okay. reasons. One is, as a boy, I used to love Boney M, uh, especially this song by the Rivers of Babylon. I just thought it was a catchy tune. And there's some of the words I found really moving. You know, it's about freedom and it's about throwing off the shackles. Uh, and for my family who had to leave difficult situations, traumatic situations where they didn't have freedom. That spoke to me. And But then when I was researching my father's side of the family, so this book about legacy is my mother's side, and the father's side, these were German Jews who left in the, the 1930s during the Nazi period. They left uh, Berlin in 1935, 1936. And I was, I've written a book about this called The House by the Lake. And this is about a small little wooden house, a weekend house, they called it. It's not a villa, it's not a palace, but it's a beautiful little house overlooking a lake. To like the a wo- dutcher Like Dasha. a dutcher, out, outside of, to the west of Berlin, uh-huh. uh, and wi- what was East Germany, so just to the west of the city. And they used to go out there for lovely weekends, uh, invite their friends. In fact, my great grandfather, Alfred, who was this extraordinary doctor, in the 1920s and 30s. His clients included Albert Einstein, Marlene Dietrich. Uh, yeah, extraordinary milieu. Yeah. And he used to go out there just to get a, piece, a bit of peace and quiet and, and then invite some friends. Well, of course, they had to leave in the 1930s. And the house was stolen by a Nazi family. And that family were the Meisels, who was a music publisher, uh, who then fell in love with the house themselves. And uh, they lived there during the war. And then they lost the house when the communists arrived. But the reason for Bonim M is um, after the war, this company called Meisel Verlag, Meisel Music Business, they set up a studio in Berlin just next to the Berlin Wall called Hansa, H-A-N-S-A, Hansa Studios. And they recorded some of the greatest songwriters and musicians of the time, including David Bowie, who recorded the Berlin trilogy there, including the song Heroes. Uh, which could have been an alternative song here. <laughs> OK. <laughs> uh, um, uh, I wasn't sure if you'd like Heroes. Uh, so then instead I chose By the Revers of Babylon because Boney M recorded that in the hands of studios. What an extraordinary link. Sequence of events, I should say. Right, here we go. I never thought I'd be introducing
1: Boney M, Thomas, but here we go. <laughs> No sí. sí. hear much of boney m on fine music radio thomas but there you are their famous song the rivers of babylon and another choice of my guest thomas harding we're talking about his book legacy which is all about the lions company l y o n s which we all know so well but what i do find strange thomas is there was this tremendously successful company but it actually collapsed.
2: Why? Was it the war? I'm not even, why why did it collapse? So when I started this, the book Legacy, I was, this is one of the questions I had because I'd heard all the extraordinary stories about wealth and public service, taking care of the family members who wouldn't otherwise be taken care of. So I wanted to find out what happened. And there was two reasons. The first is, and I'll give you an example. My grandfather Sam, Salmon, he was chairman of the company from nineteen sixty five to nineteen sixty eight. There was one reason he was chairman. He was at the time the oldest surviving member of the family. Well that's hardly a good reason to select the chairman. <laughs> you know, you might be lucky a few times, but over the years you're probably not gonna it's not gonna work out. Well he was a lovely man, he was smart, he'd never gone to business school, he'd never worked in another company. He was totally ill equipped to be running one of the biggest companies in the world. At the time the revenue, the income of the company was eight hundred million pounds in today's money. That Good would be twenty billion pounds. Yes, this is easily. a major company. Yeah. This is my grandfather's <laughs> sad, You <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I mean, bless him. I loved him, but you know, he he wasn't you know uh, what you, who you might choose to mm-hmm. be the chairman of the major corporation. So that's the one side. The other side was the next generation were very aware of this, and so then the pendulum went the other way. And when they took it over, they wanted to use the latest business models. They want to use the most exciting new tricks. And they were inspired by what was called conglomeratization in America. And the idea was in America that if you're on the business, let's say, of food, you go into other businesses. It might be sport. It might be film. It might be fashion. And you build the business even bigger. And so that's what they did. And they started uh, borrowing money. They started selling some of their hotels, which they owned. And then they started taking out loans on the foreign exchange markets to to purchase these businesses, including things like Tetley Tea, Baskin and Robbins Ice Cream, the largest ice cream company in the world, uh, Dunkin Donuts, you know, these large corporations. Mm. And then in the 1970s, as you may remember, the pound collapsed and they couldn't pay their debts. And very suddenly the company faced bankruptcy and and after over 100 years of being in the business because of some very bad decisions yes the company faced real trouble so by 79 they were forced to sell for a pittance
1: My, that's a tragic end to a story
2: like that and what is the situation now is there such a thing as the lions company so there is no such thing as lions company j Lyons. some of the products still exist well we've talked about Wimpy uh, in South Africa in Ireland they have lions tea the largest selling tea brand. Some people in Ireland might say it's Barry's Tea, but I would say it's Lyons. Uh, interestingly, if you go on the website, at least until a few days ago, I think, when I checked last, on the Unilever website, it says that Lyons Tea in Ireland was founded by Mr. and Mrs. Lyons, an Irish family from Dublin Street. <laughs> from Marlborough Street in Dublin. <laughs> Not some German Jewish family. It's hilarious. Yes. They've created this whole myth. Uh, so there's some other other brands as well. The family did fine. They had a bunch of money they put aside in this... Structure this financial structure called the fund, and that lasted until the 1990s. When then it was disbanded. Listen, you don't have to feel sorry for anyone in the family. And Monty's big thing was about keeping the family together, about unity, mm-hmm. and that has remained. And many of the members of the family have done really well. So you might have heard of some of them, Nigella Lawson. Is, is she part of the family? She's part of the family. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's some, there's some, you know, well-known people. And and perhaps if the family had done better about bringing women in. They might have done better in terms of their management because they decided to keep women out. Well, you then lose 50 percent of your potential workforce. Mm. Maybe they should have uh, had a more open minded idea about employment. Are
1: there a number of the families still alive? around yes. Like yourself and yeah.
2: um,
1: uncles and aunts and cousins. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So when I started, I knew probably four or five members of the family. We've had some gatherings of over 60 or 70. So be. it's been, a, it's been a, a relative fest, you know. But of course, when you get to new, make, you, have, you create yourself an insta family, it comes with insta problems. So, you know, there have been some people, for the most part, people have been very positive about the book. Uh, there have mm-hmm. been some people who have said, you know, why is my Uncle Tim not in the, in the book? Oh, you know? But that's inevitable, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. There's been a little bit of that. But for the most part, people have been really happy about and
1: it. And I see you've laid it out chronologically, haven't you? That's Which right. sort of makes sense yeah. because it is quite a joke. So the narrative, I think you said somewhere you wanted to to make it as clear
2: as possible for a reader to really get a feel of this company and the characters. And the history. So it's 175 years of history. I really Mm. wanted people to get a sense of the history and how it affects people. And I've written, uh, as I said, very much the ideas that people will want to keep reading. You yes, know, it's a good yes. uh, well, yarn. It's, a thick, a, good yarn. it's yeah. a thick book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some five hundred or six hundred yes, pages, yeah, yeah. and nicely illustrated
1: with some very yeah. interesting photographs of the period, yeah. which presumably comes from that archive that you were yeah, talking yeah. They've about. They've done a beautiful job packaging it, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It does look good. How long did
2: it take you to write it? About two years. Quite intensive writing, I yeah. would have thought, yeah. and research. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. I loved doing that whole, the whole uh, writing, and researching, the different phases of, you know, you start with the idea, then you do the research, you do interviews, you collect art, then the writing, and actually the longest part is the editing. That's the most part, but uh, the, the lengthiest part. And then, the you know, this, this part I love as well, which is meeting people, discussing the book. So I like each of the phases. Oh, right, there you are. I think we have to have another piece of music now. Okay. What is
1: your third piece, Thomas?
2: Well, it's... Closing Time by Tom Waits. It's a very emotional piece for me. Whenever it comes on, my wife and I we look at each other. It's our song. I met Deborah when I was 18 in the States, United States, in California, in a parking lot, and uh, she was 23. <laughs> and the two of us we cycled across the United States together. It took nine weeks, Good grief. and we and fell in love, and we've been together ever since. That was 1987. And your wife is also an author, I'm told. She's an author, and her. An extraordinary author. I mean, it's, and I write my books, but, I mean, she's an extraordinary writer. And her book comes out in September, Dan- The Dancing with the Octopus, Dancing with the Octopus. Can it's you tell memoir. us
1: a little bit about what it's about, Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's about
2: her, uh, her in the United States growing up, her memoir, um, dealing with violence in America and the consequences on her family. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I mean, the way she writes it in a in, um, to a Mockingbird, you know the Scout voice. You know she has that very vibrant okay. uh, voice, and it's it's remarkable. And it's uh, called Dancing with the Octopus.
1: Well, we'll consider that on another program. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but okay, your piece of music is by Tom Waits. Mm-hmm.
3: I don't fall in love with you Cause falling in love just makes me blue Well the music plays and you display your heart for me to see I had a beer and now I hear you calling room is crowded there's people everywhere and I wonder should I offer you a chair well if you sit down with this old clown I'll take that frown and break it before the evening's gone away I think that we make it And I hope that I don't fall in love with you Well, I can see that you are lonesome just like me And it being late you'd like some company Well, now I've had to, I look at you, and you look back at me. The guy you're with, he's up and split, the chair next to you's free. And I hope that you don't fall a man These old tomcat feelings you don't understand But I turn around to look at you You light a cigarette I wish I had the guts to burn one But we've never met I hope that I don't fall in love with you and now it's closing time The music's fading out Last call for drinks, I'll have another stout I turn around to look at you You know where to be found I search the place for your lost face Guess I'll have another round And I think that I just fell
1: Another choice of my guest on People of Note this week, brought to you by Peter Treen Productions. I hope that I don't fall in love with you. We're talking about Thomas's book, Legacy, which is the story, the history of the extraordinary. J Lyons Company, and I discovered in all this as well that they owned hotels. You were mentioning hotels. I mean, it really was. You said eight hundred million pounds or something. It was a huge business, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, so and they, some luxury hotels.
2: Yeah, they they are. They, uh, they had in London for for people who travelled uh, the Cumberland Hotel, the Tower Hotel, which is this incredibly ugly <laughs> structure by Tower Bridge in London. Uh, they had various hotels around around Europe. Uh, they, uh, they had the sole catering contract for Heathrow Airport they, <laughs> there was a guy employed by the family this is, I wish I had been around for this there was a guy employed by the family whose full time job was to help people through Heathrow Airport just to help them through customs <laughs>
1: my goodness me <laughs> It must well, have been fascinating. Yeah, well, be I great. wish there was someone like that today. I know, you? right? Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> it's terrifying to go to those big yeah, airports. Yeah. But um, also you've mentioned, you know, you are built here as a best-selling author. Hunts and Rudolph being one of your books. The House by the Lake or by the River was the other one. Yes. So you have. how long have you been writing? Has it been your life's ambition?
2: Yes, yeah, so, I, mean, I, I, I mean, I I. I hope this comes across properly, but, you know, I, I remember when I was around seven years old sitting on a staircase with my cousin, James, and I showed him some of my writing and he said, you you should do that. You at know, seven? At seven. I remember that. And, um... I've always loved to write. I haven't always been able to do it. It's taken a while for me to be able to write full time. I've been a journalist most of my life. I've worked in television and journalism. But you also done some radio, I saw somewhere. Yeah, I had a, we used to live in West Virginia for 10 years. I had this great gig with a friend of mine. It was a political talk show, and he was very much Republican. I was more on the Democrat side. And so we used to interview people and had a, had a lot of fun. And we had a, um, me and some other friends had a newspaper and we caused all sorts of trouble in West Virginia. (laughs) At one stage, the Secretary of State of West Virginia took me to court for taking a photograph of a ballot inside a voting station. I then took her to court. We changed the Constitution. We protected journalists being able to, you know, we're we're protecting journalist sources. It's called Mm -hmm. a shield law. Mm -hmm. You know, so we had all sorts of fun in West Virginia.
1: How long were you in America?
2: I was there for 10 years. Uh, My wife's from the States. Yes, you mentioned after
1: cycling across the States. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you started writing can you what was your what was
2: your yeah. first success So so in 2006 I heard from my father my great uncle Hans had died and I was very fond of uncle Hans so he he was part of my father's family the family from Berlin and at the end of the second world war so they were german jews they came to england at the end of the second world war he was drafted in to help in Belsen the Belsen concentration camp and then at during his eulogy I heard from my dad something that I never believed could be true. And he said, during that time, at the end of the Second World War, Uncle Hans had hunted down and captured the commandant of Auschwitz, Rudolf Huss. This is a German Jew hunting down and capturing. Rudolf Hess. Huss. So there's two. Uh, there's Rudolf Hess. Oh, Rudolf Hess with H-E-W-S is Hitler's assistant who flew to Scotland. And yes. This is Rudolf in- Huss, H-O in English, H-O-E-S-S, Huss. And he was the commandant of Auschwitz. And when I heard this story, I'm like, that can't be true. That's crazy. And so I started looking into it, and it turned out to be true. And then that took me then eight years of research. And I wrote the book about Hunts, my uncle Hunt, and Rudolf, the commandant. And it's a dual biography interwoven of their childhoods, what they were like as adults. And then at the end, Hunts tracking down Rudolf and capturing him. And then he brings him to Nuremberg. And his testimony at Nuremberg, Huss's testimony, changed what happened in Nuremberg.
1: My goodness. That is an extraordinary story, actually. Now
2: you've made me want to read it. Oh, good. So are your books, do you write thrillers as well? Do you write uh, fiction as No, well? I don't. I, I write narrative nonfiction. Okay. Uh, I have just, my next book, I'll leave it up to you. So my next book, which is coming out, is called Future History. <laughs> and it's <laughs> yeah. the history of the next 30 years. And I tell people Am I it's, hearing tra- correctly? I tell, people history... it's, I tell people it's non-fiction. Okay. <laughs> are you being cheeky there? Perhaps. <laughs> okay. And you're not going to give anything away, are you? No, I don't think so. You'll have okay. to read the book. When does that due out? That comes out, well, in Germany. It's being published in Germany first uh, and then in France. And so we're still, uh, we don't know yet when in England it's going to come Do
1: out. Do you still have strong German connections? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah.
2: Okay. So during the Brexit craziness... We applied for, and many people did this actually, we applied for the restitution of our German passports because our citizenship was taken from us by the Nazis. And according to the German constitution, they call it the basic law. If the Nazis stole your citizenship, then by right, you can get it back. So we've got our passports back. And on the subject
1: of Jewishness, the reason you're in South Africa at the moment, apart from your book is for the Jewish Literary Festival, which, of course, has now been cancelled because of this coronavirus.
2: Yeah, so we, I was very excited about that, and I was really honoured to come to Cape Town. We also had a trip in, to, in, in, uh, to Johannesburg, and we gave some talks there. But I totally understand. It's better to be safe than sorry, so I, I understand. Okay. Well, now we're going to have another piece of music. Your second last piece of music. So so this is Joy by George Winston. I think you'll like this piece. I think it suits your radio station. Okay. Uh, but it's really for my son, so you might not know this. His name was Cadian. Uh, he was the most beautiful boy. And he used to go to sleep listening to this music. As a kid, he used to love this music. And he used to play the piano himself yeah. uh, with De- Deborah, my wife. And when he was 14, he died. He died at the age of 14. And um, that has been, that was in 2012, so that was eight years ago. So that's been a, very difficult for us as a family, um, and we really miss him. And he was the most wonderful person, and he made people happy. So his name, Cadian, means, in it's from Jamaica, it means cheerful and charming. And he was, he, he made people happy. Uh, and this, this song, I think, is very suitable for him, Joy, by George Winston.
1: the pianist George Winston. The piece was called Joy. And another choice of my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio, Thomas Harding. And we've been talking mostly about his book Legacy and also the life of an author. But um, I was intrigued that you're having a bash at writing a children's book. You mentioned... Future history. Future history. But now tell me about this children's book, because that's quite different, surely, from what you've been doing.
2: Yes, yeah, so The House by the Lake, is it's a real story, and it's about my family's house that was seized by the Nazis, and it's a way of telling German history over 100 years. And we've been doing work through this project called Alexander House, H-A-U-S, and that's about education and reconciliation, inspired actually a lot by what's happened in South Africa, and using some of those lessons and In Germany as returning German Jews working with people in Germany but also trying to uh, work with newly arrived refugees in Germany and because we've been working with schools we started thinking about this story and how it works with children and it the books that I've written can be read by teenagers no problem but for younger kids it can be quite intense quite dark uh, quite difficult and so I was thinking would it be possible to tell this story for really young kids ages 5 to 9 is that possible And I'm like, well, how do you do that? How do you talk about Nazis? And how do you talk about having property being stolen? How do you talk about the Stasi? How do you talk about reconciliation to really young kids? Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, oh, well, actually you can do. You know, kids know what home is. They know what belonging is. They know what it's like to feel when someone takes something from you. They know about bad people, angry people. So then I started talking with a publisher, Walker Books in London, and they were interested. And they, they put me together with this extraordinary illustrator called Britta Techentrup, who's She's a very well-known illustrator and writer of children's books. And together we put this book together called The House by the Lake. That comes out uh, here in South Africa. They'll come out in s- September. In Germany, it's coming out a bit earlier. And it's been really uh, quite a journey. And it's been, a lot of it's been about trying to boil down the story. What's the emotional essence? You know, What's the heart of this? I've really enjoyed it.
1: So does that mean you might write some more children's books and maybe <laughs> get away from
2: the history bits for a while. You know I'd I'd love to. You know I've had some ideas and mm-hmm. there is it's a different audience. Yes. You know I like I like having the opportunity to challenge myself mm-hmm. and explore different ideas, story ideas, character ideas.
1: Just to end, talking about legacy and the huge success of that company before, as you said, the pendulum swung. Was it um, a success in
2: South Africa? Well, one assumes it was, sure. because we all knew J. Lyons sure, so well. Sure, of course, yeah, of course.
1: It Was South
2: Africa success story? Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. And, and um, they also had a tea plantation in Malawi. It was Nyasaland, Kenya. They had a packing plant. There was a packing plant here in South Africa. Uh, so some of the products were well known here in South Africa, and then people who were lucky enough enough to travel would be able to appreciate them in, in Britain. Uh, but yes, it was it was a strong brand for a long time in South Africa, and I think people will. What I think is interesting about this
1: book, it's not simply the history of a family because so much is going on around this family. So it's almost a history of the twentieth century in many respects, isn't
2: it? So I'm interested to see how history impacts people personally, mm. you know. And so the way I wrote this book was very much about a family's history, but the history around it. So it's a way of understanding 175 years of history through one family and the company they ran. Okay. Well, we're going to have to end it there, Thomas. I was talking to Thomas
1: Harding. His book is called Legacy by Thomas Harding, One Family, a Cup of Tea, and the Company That Took on the World. And it's published by Penguin Random House. And uh, before you go, thanks very much for coming by, Thomas. And even though the Jewish Literary Festival was cancelled, it's good to be able to have chatted to you. What is your last piece of music?
2: Well, I think this one you're going to really enjoy. And I want, <laughs> I want you to tell me, uh, I want to know what you think of this one, because this is called The Watermelon Song. By Billy Jonas, and it's just a little bit of fun. And uh, Deborah and I, uh, the kids love this song, and uh, it just makes us happy,
1: which is what we need now, especially now.
2: Thank you, Thomas Harding. Ah,
4: do it again. Ah. W. A T E R M E L O N. What's that spell? W-A-T-E-R-M-E-L-O-N I was gardening in my garden I was weeding out the weeds I passed by the place where I had planted my seeds I found the biggest thing that I'd ever seen It was like a giant football Except it was Green <laughs> Ready? W A T E R M E L O N. What's that spell? W A T E R M E L O N. Hiking on a hike. I wanted to snack a snack, so I pulled a piece of watermelon out of my pack. I got it on my chin, I got it on my clothes, a little on my elbows, a little between my toes. Here we go, everybody, ready, w-a-t-e-r-m-e-l-o-n, what's that spell? R-M-E-L-O-N Everybody make yourself really small like a watermelon seed Knees to your chest Let's do what they do when they're underground Wiggle your bottom That's how they loosen up the soil They vibrate down there And you know what they do in order to get happy? They sing their favorite song That's the way, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it, uh uh-huh, uh-huh That's the way, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it, uh uh-huh And then somebody uncovers them to see what's all the ruckus down there and they get really shy and really still. And they look up and they bat their eyes like this. And you know what they say? They say, please put the dirt back on my head. And when the dirt is back on their head, they get really happy, so they sing, That's the way, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it, uh-huh, uh-huh. That's the way, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it, uh-huh, uh And then it starts to rain, so they soak up the water. They get so big and fat and juicy that a root shoots right out of their bottom. Boom! And another root at the other side. Boom! And a shoot comes out of their ear. Another shoot out the other ear, boom. Let's have two shoots reach into the sky. Reach them up high. You're photosynthesizing, and you don't even know why. You sing W-A-T-E-R-M-E-L-O-N. What's that spell? W A T E R M E L O N. Green on the outside, it's pink on the end. Your tummy's gonna ache if you eat that skin. You better spit the seeds out, sisters and brothers cause they're coming out one and or the other. <laughs>
1: People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions.
0: FMR 101.3